You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. When a truckload of almonds goes missing in California's Central Valley, who are you going to call? Well, Detective Rocky Pipkin. Today, Pipkin tells us why agricultural crime has skyrocketed and walks us through some of his most memorable cases, like when he finally tracked down Arno Schmidt, the man running a Ponzi scheme based on dairy cows. Last time we seen Arno, he was driving a, a very expensive AMG Mercedes and picked up some young lady. 
And then we happened to catch him on a cabin cruiser taking this young lady for a ride. And we instructed our people, stay on that car. He's going to come back. There's no way that he uh, is going to leave that car there. Well, needless to say, he didn't come back. Also coming up, we use miso-infused butter to dress up a steak. And Grant Barron and Martha Barnett examine the language of soup. But first, it's my interview with Sirius Eats founder Ed Levine about one of America's most enduring culinary establishments, the diner. Ed, welcome to Milk Street. Oh, it's so great to be with you, Chris. It's a pleasure to have you. So you wrote this great piece a little while back on the American diner, which really got me thinking about diners. It was a good piece. So first of all, all of this started back in the 19th century, right? How did they get started? You know, some people think they got started in Rhode Island, that they were actually wagons that were parked outside factories or anywhere workers gathered. And what's weird is that there are still a couple of diners in Rhode Island that look the same as they did really in the 19th century. Yeah, there's no steel, there's no... Uh, aluminum. It was just wooden diners. And then where did the term diner come from? Yeah. So the lunch wagons then became railroad cars and they were meant to emulate the experience that people would get on trains in the dining car. Right. So then it just eventually, as everything does, got shortened to diners. So in your article, you write that diners are, and I'm quoting here, the greatest bastions of civility, service, and dare I say, grace, available to all economic strata in this country. Yeah, sure. I mean, in a way, it's one of the last bastions of democracy because everyone goes to diners. Venture capitalists go to diners. Construction workers go to diners. People have meetings in diners. They break up with their partners in diners. They agree to get married in diners. Everything happens in diners. And, you know, and I realized you can't say that about any other place in American life. Now, the other thing I think is really interesting about diners is people don't talk about the food. Uh, That's true. you, You talk about your marriage or your divorce or your kids or your work or your truck or whatever it is. But nobody's going around saying, well, the French toast is pretty good today, or I really like that extra cinnamon you put in the." It's just there as a way of getting people together. It's, it's the binder for the conversation. Yes, it's, it's true. It's just a vehicle. Right, exactly. You could certainly say, God, these French fries with gravy are awesome, but it's just on the way to talking about what you want to talk about. Yeah, it's about the talking because I think the other thing about a diner is you're sitting in close proximity to other people. Uh, there's a, a country gal's diner in, in Cambridge, New York, not far from my Vermont place. And I go there early in the morning sometimes. And you can hear every conversation in the place. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and the waitress also hears every conversation. So she's really up up to date on what's going on in the town. And that's that's the charm of it is there's almost a, a group conversation sometimes going on Yes, it's almost like a Quaker meeting where everybody's talking at the same time. So so what is it then, if, if the food of the diner is not particularly special, it's just good, solid food, 
But is, is there something about the menu itself? Is it the number of choices or the combinations? You know, you, you can have half breakfast and half lunch. Is it putting sides together like a sour pickle with a pancake or something that makes it sort of playful? Yes, I, I, I do think it's the first thing that you mentioned, which is the sheer number of choices. If you ever walked into a diner right now and they handed you a one-page double-space menu, you'd walk out. You'd walk out <laughs> because even though you're not going to order 95% of the things on that menu, you just like it. You just like the fact that there are a minimum of 100 items to choose from. Yeah, and seemingly made in about eight square feet. Yes. Do you think there are foods that diners do really well? I mean, you, you, I think you mentioned in your article that they don't, you know, usually the hash browns aren't great. But are there things in a diner that really are very good? I mean, you, that's where you should go eat them. Yeah, to me, and this is the, the sign of a good diner, um, can they softly scramble eggs? Right, that's that's good, yeah. And I think a patty melt belongs in a diner. Right. If they can do a patty melt, this is my diner. And I do think that there are few dishes more satisfying at a diner than a hot roast beef or a hot turkey yep. sandwich. Yep. Let's talk about display because the pies, you know, <laughs> as a kid, we used to drive to Vermont and we'd stop in Hillsdale, New York at the Rojan Diner. And there's always the lemon meringue pie, the slices, individual slices, sometimes, you know, in those big glass domes. What, what is that about? Because that, that's a very unique thing for diners. I, you know, I wish I knew where that started. Also, the rotating display right, right. of oversized cakes that invariably look better than they taste. But that's a that is a diner thing. And sometimes you'll see at the bottom of the menu, Chris, all baking done on premises. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> but I just think it's the diner equivalent of eye candy. We live in a world where everything's been upscaled, right? It used to be when I was younger in the 70s and you go to Chicago or you go to wherever, you know, it was hard to find a good restaurant, right? And now all these little places are serving great food and people have the wood-fired pizza ovens and everything's been upgraded. Diners have not been upgraded, generally speaking. Why do diners get a pass from the food world or from everybody in that they're not trying to be reinvent themselves like everyone else? I think people get a pass because their expectations are always met. In other words, there's very little possibility for disappointment. It's like, oh, I know if I go to this diner, this is what I can get, and I will enjoy it. I, I would say they, they get a pass because nobody goes there specifically – for the food, they go there for yeah. the diner experience and the conversation and everything for the community, as you said early on. And so that never disappoints. No, for sure. And that's what I mean. It's like I'm not meeting so-and-so at the diner so I can have a great meal. 
I'm going to this diner to talk about a project I'm working on or to talk about my relationship or whatever it is. And so the food takes a backseat to all of that. I, I can't imagine that diners will ever die. Ed, thank you so much. And next time we'll have to uh, do this at a diner. Absolutely. There's no place I'd rather be with you. That was Ed Levine. His article for Serious Eats is Why Diners Are More Important Than Ever. Now it's time for me and my co-host Sarah Moulton to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, and she also stars in Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. So I tried something new. I'm always trying to make roast duck, yeah. but it's a real conundrum. It's a real problem because the duck dries out if you slow roast it to get it all crispy. I mean, I could do Peking duck, but that's a whole deal. Yeah. So for years, I've been cooking it really low and slow, and then I cut it up and I crisp it, but the meat seems dry. We had um, a party with my brother, and he wanted to make roast duck. And so I gave him an res- old recipe of mine, and he made it, but he undercooked it. It was, you know, like medium, medium rare to medium. That's okay. And I was like, wow, okay. You know, it didn't take that long. He roasted it, high heat roasted it. It was crispy, yeah. somewhat crispy. I said, okay, let's do what I do when I slow roast it. Let's cut it up and crisp it skin side down. So we did. It didn't get overcooked. It was much more moist. It wasn't dried out. I will never slow roast a duck again. Has that ever happened to you that you've been making something for years and you've always been making it away? I mean, sort of like some of our callers, and it's just not working out the way you want. And then something happens, you figure something out, and eureka. Have you had any eureka moments recently? Yeah, usually they're bad eureka moments because I go like, I've been doing this turkey the same way. And now I'm going to do it differently. And I go like, why did I do it differently? I'm one of those people, as you can imagine, over 40 years who's, I always do things differently. I just keep trying stuff because I get bored. And so I'd say 80% of the time, the results are bad eurekas. But once in a while, you come across something and go like, yeah, why didn't I think of that yeah. before? Yeah, I mean, knowing that you don't have to cook duck well done. I was trying to get that crispy skin, but hey, what's the best way to do it is in a skillet. And it was just my brother just experimenting. Nothing worse than a duck and the leg meat is not properly Well, that cooked, is true. Because that's that is pretty true. gnarly. Anyway, well, thank you very much for that. Yes. And, uh, I'm glad you had a, a successful outing with your duck. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Darwin from Birmingham, Alabama. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? Good. How can we help you? I've been following your careers for a number of years, and I just wanted to express my appreciation for the substantial contributions that both of you made to how we cook. Well, thank you. I can't speak for Sarah, but for me, I just don't know what else to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I just keep doing it because I don't have a better idea. No, no, no. You do it because it's your passion. <laughs> anyway, thank Darwin, you. Darwin, thank you. That's such a nice thing to say. It's from the heart. So, uh, Chris, my question is initially directed to you. In a recent episode, you told us that you used uh, donabe, mm-hmm. a Japanese double-lid clay pot to cook rice. I have one of these, and it does a fabulous job of cooking rice. So my question to you is, do you recommend using it to cook other ingredients, such as stocks, meats, or vegetables? For instance, would you use it to make shabu-shabu? I just use it for rice. And let, let me explain it to people who don't know. You rinse rice, you soak it in the pot. The bottom of the pot is an unglazed 
earthenware, the insides glazed. And you use a, about the same amount of water as rice for long grain rice, actually slightly less, which is interesting. And then you heat it up, and when it starts to steam, there are two covers, an inside cover with two holes, tiny holes, and an outside cover that's domed, which has one hole. And when you start seeing steam come out of the top hole, you cook it for two minutes and turn the heat off and let it sit for 15 minutes. I think the expression in Japan is every grain stands up. You just unbelievably good rice. There's no other better way to make rice. The only thing I would be concerned about is if there's liquid in it, like there would be, you know, for the shabu dish, I think that would be fine. I would just worry about it cracking if it was a dry interior. I know you have to be careful with this. So I would say anything that has liquid with it, where you're not going to dry out the inside, would probably be okay. Yeah, I was just worried about whether it would absorb other flavors, you know, from meats or stocks or things like that. You know, you and I have both cooked a lot of rice in our danabe. So <laughs> I would think over time, unless you wash it out with soap, which you should never do, I would think it gets cured and you probably wouldn't have that problem. But, you know, I keep a Dutch oven on the stovetop at all times. And I also have a cazuela, which is a Mexican earthenware dish, which I use. So I'm a big fan of that because I just love the feel of it and the look of it. So I have like a six-quart cazuela for, you know, meats and other things. And I use the donabe for rice. If you like earthenware, get another pot uh, and use it for that. I would stay away from anything that's dry cooking. Okay. Sarah, you have any? All right. Well, I don't have one of these pots, so I can't exactly weigh in, but I think what Chris said makes sense, just so also you don't hurt the pot. You know, I treat it with respect. With care. I, yeah, I, I just buy a cazuela separately if I were you. Okay, well, thank you, Darling. Thanks for calling. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hello, this is Tony. Hi, Tony. Where are you calling from? I am calling from Traverse City, Michigan today. Oh, I went to U of M and uh, often went to Traverse City. Love Michiganders, married one. Why not? (laughs) At any rate, how can we help you today? I have a question about salmon. Mm -hmm. I have done some research on this and found various answers out there. So my question has to do with the gray fat that is on the bottom of salmon after you cook it. Mm-hmm. and whether you are supposed to take that off or leave it. Some of the references that I've seen say it's very high in omega-3s and you should eat it, and others say that it's not a great part of the fish to eat and you should remove it, and that it can also contain waste products like heavy metals if they're in the fish. Hmm. I've never heard that. I would agree with the former, not the latter. That it's higher in omega-3s? Yes, and I would eat it. Is there a reason you it even occurred to you not to just because it's not so attractive looking? Yeah. And so when I started looking into it, I was just looking for some clarity on it. And like so many things, the more you read, the more confusing it got. Yeah. The issues with mercury and other uh, undesirable items in fish, I think it's the larger the fish and the bottom feeders more that have that kind of issue. I'm not familiar with it regarding salmon. However, let's ask Chris here. I don't think whether we have 
an extra ounce of omega-3 fatty acids over the course of your makes any difference to your health. So I wouldn't worry about it. You're mm. right. It's right under the skin. It's not particularly attractive. I just leave it on and serve it, you know, underneath so that the, the nice you. rosy hue is on top. And uh, yeah, I just leave it on. There's no point in taking it off. I wouldn't eat it or not eat it based on either you're worrying about heavy metals or whether it's healthy for you. That's one of those things that just gets you into mental trouble. <laughs> I think yeah. salmon's delicious. Enjoy it. Don't worry about it. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to help you. If you don't like the way it looks, take it off. And generally, salmon's one of the fishes that's highest in omega-3s, so you're still going to get plenty. I was just curious. Yeah, well, it's a good question. Yeah. So enjoy it however yeah, you want it. it. I do agree with that. Okay, thank you. Thanks for calling. Right. Thank you. Take care. This is Milk Street Radio. If you're stumped in the kitchen, give us a call, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or simply drop us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Grant Rogers. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How old are you, if I may ask? I am 13. Good for you. How can we help you? I actually have a steak competition, and I also just like cooking steaks. Yeah. So I was wondering what, like, techniques and tips you have. Like, I also like making different sauces for them. And then at my dad's house, I also have a sous vide. Well, my standard method is to take a thick-cut steak out of the fridge, salt it with coarse salt, all sides, put it on a wire rack over a baking sheet, let it sit for an hour, throw it into a 250 oven until the internal temperature of the steak comes up to about 90 or 95 degrees, something like that, 90 to 100. Take it out and then throw it on the grill or throw it on a griddle pan or into a cast iron pan on the stovetop. Cook it over very high heat, just very quickly, both sides get a nice sear until the temperature's up to whatever you like, 120, 125. So that would be my go-to. The sous vide's also great. The same thing. It's, you know, the oven's like a sous vide. You get it up to 95 or 100 degrees, take it out, and then finish it off with a sear. That idea of slowly bringing the temperature up also means the outside of the steak's not going to be overcooked by the time the inside's up to temperature, which is the big problem, right? And use thick steaks. Now, there's lots of other things you can do. As you said, you can do pan sauces. You could put rubs on it. Sarah, you probably have some ideas for flavoring, right? Well, this is a competition, so they're probably looking for something besides the method that Chris just described, which I heartily endorse. It's just an informal competition. Okay. I have a church group thing, uh-huh. and we plan some activities. And one of the activities we planned was a steak competition. They mentioned they did that a while ago, and I just mentioned, oh, that's kind of cool. Because, uh, like, two nights before, I made a picanha with the demi-gloss sauce. Oh, wow. Wow. Wait, that wait is, a minute. That's okay. impressive. Now, now, okay, this is the young Jacques Pepin here. This is yes. good. One of the things you could do is just come up with a fabulous spice rub, right, for the steak or, mm-hmm. or do a really powerful sauce. For example, in Milk Street, we love all these wild flavors like gochujang from South Korea or harissa. You could do a quick pan sauce with some really strong fermented sauce or chili paste that might, you know, really set yours apart, right, Sarah? 
Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'm boring or I'm a purist. My favorite way to have a steak is finish it with some really good olive oil, squeeze of lemon juice, and some chopped fresh herbs. That's the Italian way. I also love herb butters. When the steak is resting, you put slices of butter, some really nicely flavored butter on top, and the butter sort of melts with the juices from the steak. Maybe do like smoked paprika. Oh, that's a good idea. Or chipotle. For me... A beautiful steak should be beautifully cooked, yeah, and then I, whatever you. you put on it, you put on it afterwards, so it's right. sort of fresh, and it will mingle with the juices from the steak. There's one other trick you might try. If you mix softened butter with miso, mm. that is really good, and miso's got a real right. umami yeah. flavor. Yeah, I like that idea. All right. Do you win anything if you come out first? Um, bragging rights, pretty much. <laughs> well, well you know, fine. the older I get, the more I like bragging rights. Right, that's a pretty right. good thing to win. Yeah. Good for you. And the fact that you know how to make a demiglass is pretty cool. Yeah, so. we're both very impressed. Yeah, we're big fans. Yeah. Grant, take care. It's Wishing you good to luck. To you. Yeah, wish All you right. good luck. Take okay. care, man. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're investigating agricultural crime with Detective Rocky Pipkin. That's right up after the break. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Rocky Pipkin. He runs the Pipkin Detective Agency in California's Central Valley, where the billion-dollar farming industry has made agricultural crime his specialty. Rocky, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you. So your great-great-uncle, C.W. Pipkin of Omaha, founded the Pipkin National Detective Agency was he a real character? Uh, what was he like? Um, he was a real character from the research that I've done on him. Back in the day, how he got into the business was he was a motor cop for the Omaha Police Department and developed a knack for recovering stolen vehicles during Prohibition. When I got into this business, I thought that I was going to do some things that had never been done before, but I found out that uh, I was about 100 years too late. So is agricultural crime something that goes back to your great-great-uncle, or is this something that's more of a recent development? It's more of a recent development. I'd say in the last 10 to 12 years, it's increased significantly. We, we'd get, oh, maybe a call once every month. Now the largest percentage of our investigations is in agricultural crimes. You gave a lot of reasons that were fascinating for why this is so prevalent. Some of this stuff is quite expensive. You said a truckload of processed almonds could be half a million bucks. Yes. And then you said there are no barcodes on it, right? I mean, if you got— <laughs> Right. There's, a, there's no identification whatsoever. Right. And, and everybody's got to eat. So you can fence this to anybody. Everybody's a potential customer. And you say that the product, from the point it's stolen, can leave the country within hours, right? They can just get, get to a port and get it on a boat. Yes, that, that that has occurred. Say you get away with a half a million dollars worth of pistachios. And once that boat hits international waters right. and money has been wire transferred, it just kind of disappears into the, into the sky. Could you take us through step by step, like if you're going to steal a truckload of pistachios, it's not just holding up a truck and stealing it. There's a lot that goes into this. Could you just take us through it? 
Sure. There's a couple of different modus operandi used uh, on cases that we've investigated. The simplest one is they duplicate the, the total paperwork process. This one case that we worked on, the, the crooks, they, they were able to put together a, a plan that was so much like just the average daily purchase but the plates that were on the, the trailer were actually stolen. <laughs> the driver's license was fraudulent. These folks had put together websites, emails, phone numbers to insurance companies. And so when someone caught wind that something was wrong here, when they started calling, those phone numbers were disconnected. And that, that was within probably hours of the actual taking of of the product. Are are these all international buyers where this stuff disappears, or are there domestic buyers here as well? Um, There there are domestic buyers as well. The large quantities are are going out of the country as quickly as possible, but a lot of people are uh, unknowingly purchasing stolen citrus. Hmm. At one point, mandarin oranges, halos, and cuties and all that stuff, they became very, very popular. You know, soccer moms can buy a bag and take them. Their kids love them. Those were getting stolen by people going out and doing what we call night picks. Hmm. They would get a crew of people that typically would work for other farmers, and they'd go out at night and they'd pick all these mandarin oranges and send guys out with 10 or 15 bags in the trunk of their Honda Civic, (laughs) and there's no markings. They're generic plastic bags. And so you wouldn't know. And and it's good-looking fruit. It's the same fruit that's being sold for like $7 a bag in, in the local grocery store. Do, don't farmers now, I would think they would put in surveillance cameras or other things. Is that just too expensive to install and monitor? I mean, the, the, these are hundreds of thousands of acres. Right. It's still a very rural area, and a lot of farmers do not check their fields on a daily basis. What about uh, the use of drones Is that or other technology? Is that going to help with this? Um, smart water is, is probably about the most effective method that we've found. Smart water is an invisible liquid that contains certain identifiers in it. Hmm. It'll stay on items for up to three years. And so when we have a, a, a hot crime area, We'll go out and we will place this smart water on tractors, oranges, or whatever. So say you had somebody do a night pick, and then somebody who's getting picked up for a stolen vehicle, he goes into jail, and he was part of that night pick crew. Now most of the county jails, when they book people in for theft crimes, they run them under this uh, special light. Really? And it will alert them as to... The case number. Wait, no, wait, wait, wait. I got it. That, that's, you just blew my mind. So it's like a barcode, essentially. Yeah. It's a liquid barcode. Yeah. And it'll cross reference with who the victim was, the date the crime was reported, what was taken, and all that information oh. that was previously unattachable to right. stolen property. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, one of the things we always worry about is, you know, we see organic produce in the stores and, wonder whether it really is organic. And you talk about fertilizer fraud. This was like, <laughs> this is like really a pretty amazing story. Yeah, we, you know, my kids are vegans and vegetarians and all that stuff. And when we were working this case, I was telling them, you know, you, you're not getting what you're paying for. 
when organics really started to take off, there was a guy by the name of Kenneth Nelson who owned a fertilizer company down in the South San Joaquin Valley. And he decided that he was going to come up with the best that you could buy organic fertilizer. And then a lot of people started saying, no, there's something wrong here. And and one of the prohibitions that an organic farmer must have, the ground must be fallow for, I believe, about two years with no pesticides used or any um, synthetic fertilizers. And at the time, I was thinking this is going to probably, you know, shut down the whole industry. You said that there was the organic fertilizer plant, but then nearby there was the real plant, which had the commercial fertilizer, (laughs) and they piped the commercial stuff underground into the organic tanks, right? Yeah. We had this guy under surveillance for several months, and we really weren't making any headway. But yet the field agents that were out purchasing the fertilizer, every purchase was synthetic. So we had identified a plant in an industrial park, and this guy had built a pallet castle around it so you couldn't see in at all. And it was no trespassing, chain link fences. And so we started doing aerial surveillance, and we would see a synthetic fertilizer tanker truck show up there and empty its tanks into two big fiberglass tanks that had painted on them organic. (laughs) And that's how they would get away with it for a long time. Okay, let's turn to milk. Uh, Milk is, you know, at least $10 billion a year just from California. Very valuable commodity. You said you thought you'd seen it all until you ran into a guy called Arno Smith. So who who was Arno Schmidt and what was his scam? Arno Schmidt, uh, Schmidt is how it's pronounced. Um, Arno promoted himself as coming from a very wealthy dairy family farming operation in South Africa, and and at one point during the the big boom here in in the Central Valley, when California surpassed Wisconsin as the largest cheese and dairy producer in the country. He knew that dairymen were getting as much as $800 to $1,000 per calf. And so Arno took advantage of that, and he started buying and selling cattle, when in fact all it was was a giant Ponzi scheme. <laughs> uh, the dairymen, they would call him and say, hey, where's my calves? What What's going on here? Oh, the truck broke down in Texas or Arizona or New Mexico or whatever his story of the day was. Eventually, he owed everybody and their brother, and there were rumors we were finding out out in the the field that uh, he was (laughs) beat up at one point by a bunch of dairymen and dropped off at a hospital and said if they they were seeing him here in the Central Valley that that, uh, they'd be dropping him off the morgue. (laughs) So what was the final chapter in this guy's uh, dairy industry story? Well, he— Met a, a nice lady, a widow, on millionairematch.com, and he started bouncing checks on her. He got into her for about $800,000 in supposed cattle deal loans, and he ended up getting indicted. And I think the indictment indicates that he was uh, liable for defrauding a lot of people for up to $12 million. The last time we seen Arno, he was picked up some young lady at a, at a bar and was driving a, a very expensive AMG Mercedes, and we happened to catch him on a cabin cruiser taking this young lady for a ride. And 
at the time we instructed our people, stay on that car. He's going to come back. Well, needless to say, he didn't come back. And hmm. that's when we think that he fled to Mexico. And then he'd gone to South Africa. And he'd been indicted by the South African hawks on numerous, numerous accounts of rhino poaching. <laughs> and uh, he's still there, but there's an Interpol warrant for his arrest and extradition to the United States. But it sounds like he's a pretty smart guy. He he thinks he can get away with it? I mean, what's the psychology of it based upon your experience? Well, a lot of these folks are smart. Guys like Arno, they get away with stuff like this, and and they spend all the money. I've yet to have a decent financial recovery on a fraud case. The money's gone. There are no assets. There's nothing there. They, they truly live the lifestyles of the rich and famous, and spend all the money. So was there one moment in your career that you ran into some trouble that you weren't expecting? You know, I've been doing this 35 years now, and my family's been in the business off and on since 1917. And you you don't realize that somewhere down the road, somebody's going to come up with some plan or conspiracy and pull something off that you never would have ever expected. And today we just, (laughs) just got hired on another case, and I really can't comment much on it, but it's a product that you'd never think that anybody would be stealing and putting this kind of effort into, but uh, it, it'll eventually come out. <laughs> Rocky, it's been, uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for being on Milk Street. Thank you. That was Detective Rocky Pipkin. You know, Ponzi schemes like Arno Schmidt's Dairy Cow Scam are nothing new. Ponzi schemes were named after Boston native Charles Ponzi, whose scam was based on arbitrage of postage stamps. He said he bought them cheaply in Italy and then resold them stateside for a huge profit. Now, he promised 100% return on an investment within just 90 days. And as with all Ponzi schemes, early investors made money, paid off with new money. Ponzi, of course, ended up in jail. Almost a century later, Bernie Madoff did the same thing, except on a much grander scale. In fact, one famous chef I know invested her life savings with Madoff, and she lost every penny. So the takeaway is pretty simple. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, pan-seared steak with smoky miso butter and watercress salad. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing great. So this week, we're stepping back in time to when I first started cooking, which was a very long time ago. We're doing steak with a compound butter, right? But we're doing it in a much more modern and interesting way, Chris. I'm not saying I don't like it. I think the idea of a compound butter has been lost in the mists of, you know, mastering the art of French cooking or something. But it's actually a really good idea, especially if you do it the way you're about to do it. (laughs) Well, we're going to do it with a lot more bold flavor than just shallots and maybe some fresh herbs like you would in a French compound butter. We're going to add some really flavorful ingredients. We're adding miso, uh, which adds a lot of saltiness, dry mustard, smoked sweet paprika, which not only will be adding some depth of flavor, but kind of mimics that smokiness you might get from grilling a steak. You know, we should just take a moment pause. I mean, miso is one of those umami ingredients. You can actually make 
the equivalent of chicken stock by putting miso in hot water. Right. Yes. And, you know, early in the show today, we had a young caller, 13-year-old Grant, and he called in about ideas for a steak competition, and miso butter is just one of the suggestions we gave him. Yeah, you can use it in a lot of different ways. In your salad dressing, you right. can use it as we're doing in a compound butter. You can do it, like you said, and make a broth. It's fermented soybeans, so it has a little bit of that funk that you might right. get from fermenting. It just has this really interesting flavor that kind of highlights all of the other flavors around it. The steak and the salad, are those pretty straightforward? So the steak we're using is strip steak, but there are only two strip steaks for four to six people. This is how I always cook steak. Everybody doesn't need their own hunk of steak. These are one pound strip steaks. And then slice it before you serve it. It actually ends up being quite a bit of meat. Plus you've got this really great salad to go along with it. Yeah, I hear people go like... uh don't go to her house for dinner if you're hungry. There's tons of meat, trust <laughs> you, you me. Want, you don't want to give everybody <laughs> their own steak. There's tons of meat. You'll see. Okay. You'll see. So you cook the steaks. Is this a grill or a pan sear? Or we're going to pan sear it, so a hot, hot skillet. But then once you add the steaks, we're going to lower the heat to medium. That'll cook them a little more evenly. They come off the heat, get topped with that compound butter, and rest for a bit. And then we can toss the salad. So it's watercress as the green, which is nice and peppery, really balances right the richness. And we toss that with soy sauce, scallions, sesame seeds, and seasoned rice vinegar. Very good. So pan-seared steak with smoky miso butter and watercress salad, a new way of doing a classic recipe. Thank you. You're welcome. You can get this recipe for pan-seared steak with smoky miso butter and watercress salad at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett share a word you can say when your soup is too hot. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? Hi, my name's Kelly. Hi, Kelly. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from uh, Maryland, in between Baltimore and D.C., Okay. How can we help you? Well, I had a very vigorous volunteer mystery plant show up in my garden this year, and I've been able to positively identify it as a purple shiso plant, and I had never heard of that before. And I thought it would be fun to ask you all what I might do with it, how I might make the best use of it. I think the first thing I'd want to know is, is it really shiso? Because <laughs> it turns out yeah. it's something very close but poisonous. So just I would, yeah, I would take no, a little I, taste um, first. I checked with the extension service and actually the friend who had given me the clump of plants that it volunteered in. So, yes, I positively identified it as shiso. So. Um, it's like basil, I guess, except it has a stronger flavor and you could use it like that, fresh okay. on top of things as a wrap of some kind. Um, You could also make a pesto out of it. You could use some miso instead of pine nuts, you know, and making a pesto instead of the cheese. That might work. It's a strong basil. So it's a fresh herb and use it fresh. To me, it reminds me a tiny, it has a tiny bit of a licorice taste too. It's stronger than basil. Ah, It's in the mint family. But I agree with Chris. I think anywhere you use basil or mint, you could use it. A shiso mojito. Yeah, Sounds sh- good. <laughs> you know, it's mostly, in, you find it in Japanese dishes, but there's no reason you couldn't take it elsewhere. 
I like the idea of using it, pairing it with miso for a pesto. That sounds fun. Yeah, that would right. be really good, so. like on soba noodles right. or something. Yeah, yeah, that would work good. It's also yeah. nice with yeah. fish or with okay. some sort of a raw fish or raw oysters and a mignonette. I think it would also be nice like with yeah. raw tomatoes or with corn. That's a good idea. Yeah. That would be very good yeah. with the relish. Yeah. That's, that is that's a lovely excellent idea. idea. Thank you. Sarah, you're on top one oh, today. Okay, there we All go. Right, Nicely well, done. Kelly, thank you. Thank you. I have a lot of fun ideas. I appreciate you taking my call. Yeah, okay. pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Karen Betts from Phoenix, Arizona. How can we help you? I have a question regarding olive oil and why we can use olive oil to cook in a high heat oven, like say 425, 425 degrees, but we can't use it on the stovetop. We have to use like a higher smoke point oil. Very tricky question. And an excellent question, I might add. First of all, regular like refined olive oil actually has a pretty high smoke point of like 450. So, you know, extra virgin Evo olive oil is probably around 400 or so. Like a light olive oil or non-extra virgin olive oil is 450. So that would be okay. The problem with that is when you heat olive oil, you lose a lot of the volatiles, right? So a really Mm -hmm. premium olive oil really should never be heated. It would be used as a drizzle or in a salad dressing. So I would never use a quality, high-quality olive oil in roasting vegetables or whatever. I would just use grapeseed oil or whatever, sunflower oil. It's not going to really matter. But if you want to buy a less expensive refined olive oil for cooking, that's fine. And the smoke point will be 450. You might want to keep an expensive bottle of olive oil for drizzling and salad dressings, et cetera, and a less expensive, more refined oil for cooking, even high heat roasting. Or you could use some other oil. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, that makes that kind of makes sense. I didn't realize that the temperature was, was that high of a smoke point. But yeah, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you've lost a family recipe you want to recreate or just need some help in the kitchen, give us a call. Our number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Now it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. You know, miso has become one of those darling ingredients, but people don't really know how to use it. So here at Milk Street, we have some unusual ways to use that miso sitting in your refrigerator. First of all, compound butter. The recipe is mix equal parts softened butter with white miso for do-it-all butter to flavor everything from chicken to blanched vegetables to pasta and rice. We think it's particularly good with asparagus. Salad dressing, the rich, thick body of miso adds depth and helps emulsify vinaigrettes. It's a great technique. And finally, oddly enough, caramel sauce. Try adding a little miso to your next batch of caramel sauce for a savory undercurrent to the sugary sweetness. No one's going to know it's there. By the way, wait until the caramel's cooled a little bit before whisking in one teaspoon of miso at a time. Please taste it in between additions. By the way, if you'd like to share your own cooking tip right here on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. Grant and Martha, how you guys doing? We're doing great. Super duper, dude. <laughs> Funny you should mention that term, Grant. Yeah. 
Today, Martha and I are thinking about soup. Yes. For example, the term in the soup, which means uh, in a difficulty. There are lots of stories floating around about the origin of that uh, expression. Yeah. Most of the stories don't have any good evidence, but there was a sketch comedy team of George and Marie Nelson, vaudeville act from coast to coast, and one of their gags was that they put everything in the soup, including human bones and razor blades and whole people. <laughs> and according to an 1888 news article, supposedly in the soup became a synonym for defeat and dejection and despondency. And in that year, in the soup was something of a political catchphrase because Benjamin Harrison defeated the incumbent Grover Cleveland for the presidency of the United States. And losing your seat as an incumbent is definitely a big kind of being in the soup. Wait, 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 wait. wait. So I, I understand. So they had a vaudeville routine. Yeah. Yeah, Benjamin Harrison and Grover. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Grover, yeah. My favorite stage show they ever. They were hilarious. <laughs> Harrison and Cleveland. What a team. But this couple had a vaudeville show. Yeah. They threw everything in the soup. So how did that expression in the soup become associated with being in trouble? Well, the longer version is they ran a boarding house and they were kind of scammers and they provided the soup for their people who stayed in their boarding house and they would just throw stuff in it and the uh. soup just got more ridiculous as the act went on and on. They would just throw everything into it. <laughs> and so if you got thrown into the soup, it meant that you were in a bad way. You were right. in a bad situation. Okay. Got it. On the other hand, if you're talking about something really positive, we use the term duck soup to mean something easy. You know, it's it's a cinch. And nobody's really sure where that expression comes from. But it might be as simple as the term sitting duck and the fact that uh, ducks are supposedly pretty easy birds to kill. And um, I do like that expression, everything's duck soup except the bill. <laughs> Very yeah. good. Well, ducks are not easy to shoot, but a sitting duck is. Yeah, exactly. I, I guess that's true. Now, now, now. So, the Marx Brothers duck soup is that? I could yeah. never figure out why they called that movie duck soup. Well, the expression was well established by the time the film came around. But there's a, a place in the film where Groucho says, "Take two turkeys, one goose, four cabbages, but no duck, and mix them all together. After one taste, you'll duck soup for the rest of your life." <laughs> so that's his joke. But uh, the expression was already around by then. Huh. Yeah, and if you're overly nitpicky, you might be described as somebody who looks for the hair in the soup in Germany, das Haar in der Supersuchen. And if they're super nitpicky uh, in Italian, what you can say to them is the equivalent of either eat soup or jump out this window. And he's take it or leave it. <laughs> Stop looking for the hair in the soup. Yeah. <laughs> now, you might also be thinking about, as when somebody mentions soup, souped up comes in. We're thinking about hot rods right. and automobiles right. and things going fast and engines revving. And this goes back well into the 1920s in terms of automobiles. And the main theory to date is that it might refer to nitroglycerin, which was often referred to as soup, S-O-U-P. Oh. And actually a lot of variety of chemicals were often referred right. to as soup, including gasoline. There's an expression that I love in Spanish, estar hasta en la sopa, which means to be even in the soup. And mm. you use this when you're describing something or someone that you see once and then you see it everywhere. Oh, you know, maybe you see yeah. see like a white Prius right. and then you start right. seeing it everywhere. Right. You see it here, you see it there. You see it even in the soup. That is one of the great truths about life. Yes. Like you notice totally. something once and then, then you see it all the time. Yes. Yeah, the linguistic term for it is the frequency illusion. And here's an Italian soup, one that actually directly connects to cooking. 
If someone is a little full of themselves, they have an overly high opinion of themselves, you can say, con la carne di capone fa minestra ogni carrione, which basically means any jerk can make soup out of capon meat. <laughs> the idea is that it's supposedly a, a rich, fatty right. meat. So, so any right. jerk can make... <laughs> <laughs> but before we go, we've got two favorites to share with you. My favorite is this Italian expression, Amore senza baci, minestra senza sale. Love without kisses, soup without salt. It's not how you say you love someone. It's how you show love someone. And Martha's got one, well, it's what you say when... <laughs> yeah, I'm going to try to pronounce this, but I confess that I've never heard it in conversation. I've only seen it. But I guess the term is hasafashafas. <laughs> Oh, thanks, Grant. Yeah, thank, yeah thanks, thanks for clarifying lot, yeah. that, Grant. <laughs> Great. It's the sound that you make when you take a bite of something that you didn't allow to cool enough mm. before you put oh. it in your mouth. <laughs> but you've had this experience, you know? Like, like you don't want to spit it out, but you don't want to swallow it, so you just I think say, I, I say something else entirely, but that's just me. <laughs> Grant Martha, thank you so much. Now I know what to say when I get a hot slice in New York. What do I say? Thanks, guys. Goodbye, Chris. That was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. That's it for this week's show. If you tune in too late or just want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or learn about our magazine and latest cookbook, Vegetables. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. I'd like to thank the Japan External Trade Organization, Jay Fudo, once again for sponsoring this week's show. For more information on how to use Miso, there's a link on the podcast page of our website. Just go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio. One more time, 177milkstreet.com slash radio. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tureski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. 
the all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S to learn more. 